Super Talk Mississippi media production. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Jamie Creel with Shelter Insurance. Come see how we've built a name that you can trust and why it is a must to get your free quote today with our Switch and Save. Located in Ridgeland and Florida, Mississippi, give us a call, 601-992-6000. Howdy, howdy. It's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Everyone, welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host, Gerard Gibbard, along with Rhino in the Element Wealth Studios, guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music. It is a Monday, the start of a brand new week. We're just plowing through January like there ain't no tomorrow, and it is also Martin Luther King Day today, and that's why the parking lot out here is empty there, Rhino. I trust your weekend was good? Oh, yeah. It was a pretty good time. Didn't uh, last quite as long as I would have liked, but uh, there are some people who are getting the Monday off, just not us. Like I said, as evidenced by the numerous parking spaces that are unfilled here at uh, the Super Talk headquarters building, and this office is pretty quiet, too. You it's mean, not always Will? a bad thing. No, I agree. Got to, got to park close. Don't have to walk as far. That's a benefit. <laughs> the market's closed today. That means I can't lose any money. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at the futures. A mixed bag again. The Dow basically flat. Dow up a little. The Nasdaq down a little. But it is... MLK Day 2023, thus the banks are closed. The state of Mississippi, right, closed as well. Pretty much everything's closed. Oh, yeah. A lot of stuff. It's also considered in many circles the most depressing day of the year. You seen that? You ever seen a report on that? No. Yeah, the um, it's considered the saddest day. Yeah, let me re let me rephrase it. Every year, the third of Monday in January is spoken about as the most depressing. Yeah, depressing or saddest day of the year, or Blue Monday, and often associate, associated to seasonal affective disorder. Didn't know that was a thing. Yes. Oh, yeah. S-A-D. Hmm. Ties uh, to the cold weather, the, the bleak skies, typically gray skies, and just the time after Christmas. Go from being all jacked up, celebratory, 
See, I would have guessed it's because it's more than two weeks into the new year, so the vast majority of New Year's, new year's resolutions are out the window. That's pretty much right. Didn't take t- till today, but I guess reality setting in after three weeks. Yeah, not working out too well. This uh, saddest day of the year, also referred to as the most depressing day of the year, coined by psychologist Cliff Arnall in 2004. So it's hasn't been around for a terribly long period of time. Bad weather. Oh, here's the other thing. Financial debt coming out of Christmas. I'm sad because it's tax time, and I've got estimates due again. That always saddens me, putting them checks in the mail. Property taxes as well, due by the end of the month across the state of Mississippi. Those are sad events. Sad, sad, sad. I just looked it up, and this Arnell dude, yeah, the uh, psychologist that came up with it, yep. with Blue Monday, <laughs> he apparently has put out two different press releases on the matter, one in 2005 and one in 2009, showcasing the quote-unquote equation he used to figure out the date. Wait, it's math? The only problem is the equation is different from each press release. Oh, <laughs> changing the math around with each press release. Gotcha. Oh, and it also takes into account weather conditions. Therefore, it only applies to the northern hemisphere because he didn't <laughs> include the equations for the southern hemisphere weather. Oh, okay. So it's only That's true. the most depressing day of the year <laughs> in, the, in the northern hemisphere. <laughs> Well, I guess you could get happy by just crossing the equator, right? I guess so. <laughs> oh, gosh. It is Martin Luther King Day. And, you know, this is another. We talked last week about how those of us that have been around long enough for these various world-changing events remember where we were, John F. Kennedy. Probably for me, and I think for a lot of people, a lot of people that were around, of course, during World War II, the attack on Pearl Harbor, they would be able to recall where they were when they first heard that the uh, Japanese had attacked the American fleet, sitting ducks at Pearl Harbor. Wasn't around then, but I I know uh, my father and others in his generation when I was younger, they certainly would speak about that. So for folks around my age, I guess, JFK, and then more recently, 9-11. But last week, it was because of the death of, of uh, Presley. And we remember where we were when we heard the announcement that Elvis was, uh, 1977, was dead. Martin Luther King is another one. 1968 that does come to mind. I do remember where I was. I was a young boy. And honestly, that was such a tumultuous time in this country. 1968, of every year in my entire life, that seems to be the one that just kind of sticks out. So much happened. So you had, of course, the assassination of Martin Luther King, and then also, as I recall, the, the riots in Chicago, which occurred as well, the 1968 riots. 
as they are known. And you had the the Democratic Convention as well, and just scores of protests. So it was just an incredibly unsettling time. It was a nation that was really at odds and ripped apart in a different way than we seem to be today. But I certainly remember where I was when I learned about it. It was in my backyard. I remember it. And it, it was very sad, of course, and, and we remember that today. Oh, what I would give for this country to truly heed and subscribe to the message of Dr. King, which is one of equality, not equity, one where outcomes are determined by character and merit and value. I believe Dr. King subscribed to those beliefs, those principles. But today, no, it's equal outcomes. We've got to force equal outcomes, hook or crook. And so the folks at time, left-wing folks at time, they come out with an article that says how Martin Luther King's dream could end poverty. And I read through that, and it's just a... It's an ad, if you will. It's a an article that just comes out in support of blatant wealth redistribution. The way to end poverty is just to give people money that we have to go borrow or take from others. I don't think that's the way Dr. King envisioned a totally free and equitable society, equitable in terms of opportunity. That's all he called for. That's all he asked for. I agree with him. But we've we've crossed over that line, have we not? It just feels like it. Everywhere we go, in every corner of society, there are these calls for equity, which equals equal equates to equal outcomes, regardless of, again, regardless of performance, regardless of merit, regardless of qualifications or skills. I'm so concerned about laws passed in New York and California and how they might spread that require employers to publish salary ranges for every, every job, every position. And they say that, well... This will end the pay disparity. Right. And this will end the gap between high performers and low performers. Do we want that? Shouldn't we pay high performers more? What the heck is wrong with people? Laziness. Oh, yeah. You can't make more than that person, even though you produce like twice as much as they do. And that's just a march to mediocrity. We're coming right back with Senator John Horn. Stay with us.
Now back to Middays with Gerard here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone midday super talk mississippi in the element well studios on this martin luther king day we welcome senator john horn he represents district 26 that's hines in madison county serves as the chairman of the senate labor committee and vice chair of the senate tourism committee senator always good to see you sir thanks for coming in great to be here gerard so martin luther king day today well what does that mean to you senator well, I think that uh, he was one of the greatest servants uh, that had, has, that mankind has ever uh, witnessed, and uh, his his he, you know what gets me is his, his drum major instinct speech. He talks about that and talks about how uh, everybody likes to be in, ahead of the parade, out front to lead. The, the, he said, "But understand that he who is the greatest among you shall be your servant." All it takes is a head to think, a heart to feel, and a soul to to aspire, and you too can be that great one. And I think that's a great model. Uh, it's it's it harkens back to the the, the Christ model that uh, we should live our lives in service to others. Yeah. If he were around today, Senator, what do you think he would say that he likes, and what would he say that he doesn't like? You thought about that? <laughs> I know it's a bit of a deep question. Didn't mean to catch you off guard, but. I think that Dr. King would see us in this country right now as in a crisis of spirit. Uh, I know that certainly I feel that way about the, the African-American community. I, I think that we, we have a crisis of spirit in our community right now, and it's going to take more than just a few sound bites to, to, to rectify it. it. It's going to take a lot of hard work. Um, so I, I think that that overall he he would say, hey, you, you folks are in, 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 you're too materialistic, you're too divided, hmm. uh, you're you're too simplistic in your desire for solutions, and you need to do better. And and I think that that part of that is that our spirituality is lost, yeah. in my opinion. And and I think that that's true of the larger country as well. Uh, you, you see it in in all sectors of America. That that um, this country, even even those of us who drape ourselves in the, the Lord and, and, and Savior Jesus Christ, sometimes we're not doing it for all the right reasons. Yeah. And I, I I really think that that that's probably his. That would be probably his biggest observation is that we have a crisis of spirit yeah. in America. I think um, he would be surprised at, at the technology and the diversity of, of participation in a lot of different areas. I think that uh, he would um, he would like some things about housing, like some things about small business development, like some things about what our military is doing, uh, and, and all those things. But I, I think that that the bottom line is that his heart would be heavy because of, of the spiritual crisis that we're in. Yeah. You know, something that uh, occurred to me over the weekend anticipating this day that I think differentiates uh, Dr. King is that he was able to largely deliver his message without politicizing it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You didn't really hear him talk about political parties or political figures that much. I think he, he, he approached us from a moral standpoint. Right. 
you know, a right and wrong, just straight up and down, right and wrong standpoint, yeah. and, and that that speaks to our morality. Yeah, we need more of that. Yeah, we need yeah. more of no just doubt. having these discussions about morality mm-hmm. and uh, moral decay in our country, well, and know, less it, about trying to attach everything to some political person or party. Exactly, and, and the, the polarization is something I think he would really, really have a problem with. Yeah. But you know, he had this. Uh, it, it was described as the audacity of faith in the future. Yeah. You know, be, he was bold about his faith for the future of this country and the future of the world. And and um, he, he spoke about it so boldly that he shared his dream with us of, of this country and, and the world becoming a better place. Yeah. Do you feel like it's gotten better with respect to uh, racial harmony, race relations? What do you yes think about no. that? Yes okay. and no. Okay. Uh, certainly, there's a lot more uh, intermixing and, and mingling uh, amongst the races. And, um, you know, uh, when Dr. King was, was in his heyday, uh, five years before his death, there were no black folks on television. There were very few that you hear on the radio. Yeah, shouldn't even, and and um, I just, we, we were we were the invisible man in this country, okay, um, and uh, a lot often seen but but not heard, and and when when we were seen, we were kind of just invisible, we were ignored, mm. we were just part of the the scenery. So I think mm. the, the the presence that you see of uh, African American people who just have div- diverse backgrounds, you see a lot more of that in our society today. Uh, I think you know in the early sixties, fifties, and whatnot, uh, we were we were a vanilla society officially, and what I mean by that is is, is that the the norm was uh, a middle aged white male. You saw those persons everywhere in terms of television, radio, the visibility, the people in charge. And now you, you have a more of a shared experience uh, in terms of of leadership, um, uh, folks who are involved at, at, at all levels of government, all levels of business, all levels of society. But but we're real po- polarized. <laughs> you know, we're getting more and more polarized uh, as time goes on. And uh, I don't know that, that he would be real pleased with that. Yeah. Well, I tend to agree with that. You know, I, I like to reflect, I guess, on achievements and accomplishments more than I do uh, that which we uh, have, have not overcome. Mm-hmm. But and, and that's not to say that, hey, we, there's no work to be done. But I think we also have to take some satisfaction oh, yeah. in how far we've come. Oh, no doubt about that. No doubt about that. And, and um, I, you know, the funny thing about it is that with all of this polarization, we're not that far apart in in, in the grand scheme of things if we would just reasonably sit down uh, and and talk out our differences and, and come to some sort of compromise or an, an agreement of how we're going to go forward. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's a good point. Yeah, you're exactly right. We... We've gotten to where we just split up into our respective corners and just throw bombs, mm-hmm. and that doesn't really fix anything. And, and there, there's, there's too much of a herd mentality. Yeah. Uh, if you're not a part of that herd, you don't need to be over there fooling around with, with those right. folks or adopting their their beliefs or whatever. you got to stick with your own herd. You're right. All right. Well, let's talk about the legislature. No, please. Not. <laughs> <laughs> no, I appreciate, I appreciate the discussion, though. I mean, sure. and I think yeah. to, today it's important for us to, to take some stock of uh, how far we've come towards achieving uh, Dr. Absolutely. King's dream. And, and I, I don't know anybody that would disagree 
with his, you know, his key message, which is you should be, uh, people should advance in this society and and should be uh, held based on the content of their character, not exactly. the color of their skin. I, and I, I think we made and, a lot of progress. What you can offer that. and what you can bring to the table. Yeah, sure. You know, yeah, uh, I don't think that he wanted anybody to have a free ride. Yeah, uh, but he wanted everybody to have a fair chance. I agree, and I, I mean it's a it was a pretty simple message that I, I applies today. Of course, still, uh, I would like to hope and think that he's pleased with. I think much progress has been made. You you just said it. You went from being invisible to now fully integrated across the spectrum of society in this country, mm-hmm. and I think largely due to his work, his efforts. He, he made that pretty clear. Yeah, We've got to fix that. But I think Dr. King, would he would disagree with that. Okay. I think that he would celebrate the, the fact of the actions of the common man and woman in the movement before uh, in terms of, the, of their hmm. making the sacrifice because – when he would come to Mississippi or come to Georgia or come to Tennessee or whatever, he'd leave, leave the locals behind to, to, to clean up the mess that, that, that the disruption might have caused. And and so it took a lot of bravery on the part of, of just average, everyday men and women who did extraordinary things. And I think that's that's the message of King's, King's okay. movement. Fair enough. I, that's a, I think it's a very... Uh, introspective uh, way to look at it, and I appreciate that. So, all right, so we got the legislature in session. It's hard to believe, but it, entering week three, we're back of the circus, right? <laughs> so you guys are back. You'll be gaveling in today, yeah, uh, at four o'clock, right, which is customary right. for Mondays. What do you think uh, so far? I think it's going to be a relatively quiet session. Um, I, you know, we're in an, an election year. February 1st is the qualifying deadline. Everybody's kind of biting their nails, uh, hoping <laughs> they don't pick up you know, uh, an opponent or more than one opponent. And so we're con- concerned and focused on that. And um, usually in an, a, 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 an election year, we don't have a whole bunch of issues that we tackle because some of those issues might take somebody's picture off the wall. And, and so we, we kind of... Uh, Operating in an understated fashion. The typical euphemism used to describe getting unelected, right? Take your picture, Take your picture off, the off the wall. We got a break right here. You can hang around with us, can't you? Sure. We got Senator John Horn in the Element Well Studios, and we're coming right back. To Middays with Gerard. Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk, Mississippi.
The Who. Nobody thinks that's the name of the song, though, do they, Rhino? No, they think it's Teenage Wasteland. <laughs> it's not. Bob O'Reilly. <laughs> We've got Senator John Horn in the Element Wealth Studios. So, uh, Senator, the something I think that has is, is really evolved during this session, and even prior to uh, a level of high priority, I would say, is the, the dire situation of health care mm-hmm. uh, in the state of Mississippi. And by that, I mean health care providers, health care institutions, in particular rural hospitals. They've been in focus as all struggling financially. Well, not all, but, but yeah, they're all struggling financially, some of them uh, very severely right. on the cusp of possible failure. Uh, 54, I think, of the state's 122 hospitals are considered rural, and of those, mm-hmm. 38 are in dire financial condition, is, is what's being reported. I think that the Democrats, right, in the, in the, um, in the uh, legislature just, just a couple of weeks ago, a few days after the session started, made some proposals of how to rectify this and address mm-hmm. it, which included expanding Medicaid. That's been on the table since Medicaid expansion's been available. That goes back eight years ago. And then just uh, trying to to sue the current uh, financial dilemma with $150 million, it would just be allocated, which is kind of a one-time fix. I don't mm-hmm. think it, it fixes the problem on a long-term basis. You got any thoughts about that? What are you hearing yeah, around well, the legislature? I think uh, I sat in on the Public Health and Welfare Committee meeting um, just before Christmas uh, in the Senate, uh, and uh, the Mississippi Hospital Association and other health advocates were there, and they were talking about options, and one was cutting some of the taxes that hospitals owe the state, um, some cash payments possibly, or the expansion of Medicaid. I, th- I think that no option should be off the table. Um, you know, the, the the fear of Medicaid expansion is an unfounded fear, in my opinion, because there's no documentation that the federal government would would hang the state of Mississippi out there uh, to dry and, and and eliminate a program once they've got it up and running. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've, we've been at this thing for about 12 years, and the program is, is working in, in other parts of the country. Uh, you know, whether it's Medicaid uh, expansion, whether it's a, a, an Arkansas model where you, you bring in the private sector to help folks who are Medicaid eligible who are not on Medicaid right now, uh, you know, I often say, say to folks, and I, I may be putting words in his mouth and he may be calling me up saying, Don't, why did you say that about me? But I think that uh, former Governor Haley Barber, uh, would have figured out this this issue. Uh, we might be calling it Haley Care in Mississippi, <laughs> but but he would figure it out how to go get that federal money. And I think we need to figure it out as well. Yeah. Well, um, something I've talked about here on the program, and and uh, once again did so on Friday, which is the enhancements to the Affordable Care Act that were enacted originally in the American Rescue mm-hmm. Plan signed right. by President Obama. Uh, pardon me, President Biden, in uh, early 2021, right, right after he took office. Yeah. And then those were made permanent in the Inflation Reduction Act. Mm-hmm. Those provisions don't get a great deal of attention. There's more focus on uh, some of the, the subsidies and tax credits for mm-hmm. investment in electric appliances and electric vehicles and some of the so-called Green New Deal uh, type issues. But this health care, this Affordable Care mm-hmm. Act, 
uh, situation in the Inflation Reduction Act is significant. It actually, in my view, is better than Medicaid expansion in that it would cover able-bodied adults uh, who have a household income of less than 150 percent of the federal poverty level. Medicaid expansion would uh, allow able-bodied adults with household incomes of less than 138 percent of the federal poverty Mm -hmm. level. This is actually better. And by the way, under these new provisions applying to the Affordable Care Act, their premium cost would be zero. Zero percent of their income they would spend on premiums, and they would get private coverage. Seems like we ought to be promoting that the heck out you of know, that. I think this goes back to what we were talking about earlier with Dr. King, the partisanship and, and, and the fact that someone might have a good idea, but because the, a Democrat proposed it, I'm not, I'm not for that. I'm a Republican. I'm not for it. Or a Republican proposed it. I'm a Democrat. I'm going to be <laughs> against that automatically. And so we turn a, turn a blind eye to to what's real, what's right in front of us, in my opinion. And, I, you know, you, you were just sharing this with me when we were off the air, and I'm not as as in, uh, knowledgeable in-depth about the Inflation Reduction Act. Mm-hmm. That, those sound like great ideas to me, but nobody is talking about it because I think everybody's in their own corner. I, I tend to agree with you, and and I, I'm not talking about just at the state level, but at the, the federal level as as well. But there were significant tax credit expansions mm-hmm. um, that were enacted as part of the Inflation Reduction Act. Now these continue through 2025, but you know as well as I do, once you put things like this in place, they're not likely to ever get pulled back. Well, we're in an election year, and we're not going to expand Medicaid in Mississippi in this in this election year. I don't believe. Uh, we may do some stopgap measures. The one-time money that you spoke of may be something that's on the table. Yeah. But I, I really think that we, that stronger minds have, have got to prevail. Maybe we need to establish a commission that's given a charge of coming back with a solution by the end of the year or to, to come back with a solution during a special session. I don't think that that's going to happen uh, before November of this year, yeah. but but uh, but cooler heads need to prevail, and we've got to solve this health care crisis that we have in Mississippi. I just feel like that this is something that should be front and center as part of oh, the no discussion, no that, that this does not cost the state of Mississippi any, any money. This is uh, all federal tax well, credits. Certainly, the, the changes that you're speaking of in the Inflation Reduction Act merit our look at taking a hard, hard look at them. Well, I certainly hope you, you will do so. Uh, I really do, the uh, because it changed rather significantly, and, uh, and that's actually been in place since the American Rescue Plan was enacted mm-hmm. in uh, February of 2021. This has been in place. It seems like someone would have some data that would say, okay, this is the number of people that have taken mm-hmm. advantage of this, that have enrolled, whose household income is below the 150%, otherwise would have been eligible for Medicaid yeah, expansion. And I don't know that we've got anybody in state government that's looking at it like that. Okay. We should, in we my should. view. Oh, no I absolutely no believe that we should, because otherwise, how do we know the proponents of Medicaid expansion, how do they know how many people this would affect? Mm-hmm. 
This would be very instructive in that respect. Like, well, wow, for this temporary period of time, you could go sign up and get free coverage in the private marketplaces right now. And and the, the, the federal government will pay for that private marketplace, yes. and it's, it's no money out of pocket for the, the, the client. Well, the big change was is that uh, they, they, they changed the sliding scale mm-hmm. of income eligibility, but at up the bottom of that, well, at the, well, it goes all the way up to 400%. But the, and and that it determines the amount of of uh, premiums uh, a person would pay as a percentage of their income mm-hmm. based on their income level. But it, what it did is it slid everything up mm-hmm. such that 150 percent and below is zero percent of their right. income. Right. That was, it used to be two percent up to a certain level. Now it's zero you know, percent. That, that certainly is something that we ought to be looking at. I I hope you guys can uh, maybe consider that in your discussions and and as an option. Now, what you'll get pushback on is, well, they still have deductibles and co-pays. There's also something known as cost-sharing reductions, where the federal government Mm -hmm. will help pay, offset some of the out-of-pocket costs. But maybe that's something, even what is left over there, which is a a very small value, maybe that's something the state could cover. And we get people in private coverage. Yeah. Well, uh, certainly uh, coverage. Uh, the working poor ought to be our top priority, and certainly uh, to these hospitals, especially in the rural communities that are in crisis, we got we got to do something. Yeah. We can't let them down the vine. Communities will also down the vine, and people will down the vine. Yeah. You know, I, I think about um, I heard, heard the story the other day about uh, someone who could not get to a, a, a hospital in time that their local hospital was closed. And by the time they got them transported uh, to uh, the next nearest hospital, they they were expired. If you can hang around, you come back, and we'll talk about what you got going on in your committees. Okay. Sounds good. All right, we got Senator John Horn in the Element Wealth Studios. Stay with us. Listening to Middays with Gerard here on Super Talk Mississippi. Midday Super Talk Mississippi in the Element Well Studios. We've got Senator John Horn with us today on this uh, Martin Luther King Day. So, Senator, what about your committee, the Senate Labor Committee? What what do you got uh, going on there? You're focused. Well, I, I don't think that we're going to see much in the way of, of legislation coming out of the Labor Committee this this year. Uh, it's not one of the more active committees in in the legislature. Let me put it that way. 
where I'm going to be focused, and, and I know it's a broken record, but um, we've got to fix the city's infrastructure, our capital city's infrastructure. Just got over $800 million uh, from the federal government that mostly is going to flow through EPA to the, I call him the water czar, Ted Hennepin, uh, who make <laughs> decisions about about the water treatment as well as billing and collections. But while we're, we're celebrating all that, we still are looking at well over a billion-dollar price tag for fixing the sewer and wastewater, and that's not a part of the, the emergency order. That's not a part of the judge's order. But the infrastructure on water and wastewater is in worse shape, quite frankly, than the drinking water is. It's just that we don't see it or, hmm. or, or notice it as, as much. So we're trying to get to a number that of, of a request uh, on the sewer and wastewater. One of the things I'd like to be able to do is the, the money that the city just got from the Department of Environmental Quality uh, for seven projects that are water-related projects to be able to switch that money over to wastewater since we got the $800 million from the federal government. Oh, okay. So how will the state participate in that? What were your well, involvement? As I say, um, uh, I think we, we may need to ask the state to give us permission to take the uh, the money that was already funded to the city uh, in, in the uh, ARPA funds, the state ARPA funds, that the, that the city matched with city ARPA funds. I got you. And put that over on wastewater. Okay. I think that's one small thing that we could do. And, and then um, uh, the state revolving loan fund for um, uh, DEQ uh, ought to be another program that we look carefully at. Okay. You've got Representative Shawnee Yates has offered a bill that would allow uh, the citizens to hold a recall election for municipal figures. Mm-hmm. There's some certain mm-hmm. thresholds that have to be met there. I think 30% of the voters in the district or the, the uh, area uh, within the boundaries of their, mm-hmm. their jurisdiction right. would have to uh, sign off on a petition that would go to, a, I think, a task force, a tribunal, as I recall, appointed by the governor, and they would recommend yeah. have an election. What do you think about well, that? Well, uh, let me first say that we have a means of recalling county elected officials right now. And, and some could argue we need the same kind of, of, of vehicle uh, at our disposal uh, to deal with municipal elected officials. Okay. Uh, I think that uh, the bill will probably, uh, if, even if it became law, it would be very, very difficult to file a, and successfully recall a municipal elected hmm. official. Hmm. You know, I think about, if we take the city of Jackson, for example, we're not getting... Uh, more than 25% of our electorate voting in, in general elections. So to say you've got to get 30% of all the electors to sign a petition, I think that's going to be difficult. Yeah. And then at least 50% of the electorate has to vote in that, elect, that recall election. I don't think we'll ever get there. Yeah. So it, it maybe it's just kind of uh, dipping the toe in the water here, yeah, so to speak. Yeah, could be, could be. But 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 from a practical standpoint, the way that bill, as I've read it, uh, uh, would work, that's a that's a tall order to to get those that kind of participation when we, we get so much voter apathy right now. Yeah.
Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I'm not sure how much it would be put to use, but it it seems to be something that uh, a lot of citizens would like to see. Yeah, no, no doubt, no doubt. I mean, there's been a, a lot of talk about our incumbent mayor, but there there are others around the state that folks may want to, uh, to have in mind about about a bill like this. Yeah, but um, I just think it's a it's a tall order. Uh, okay, something else that uh, is getting a lot of attention this session that did not get across the finish line last year is the citizen ballot initiative process. You know, we had a bill in the House, had a bill in the Senate. The Senate had a much higher signature threshold. What do you think? (laughs) Well, we need initiative and referendum. Uh, There's no doubt about that. Uh, We've we've shown that sometimes the legislature doesn't get it right in terms of what the citizens want. They put issues on the ballot, and the uh, medical marijuana issue is a good example of that. Uh, the issue with regard to eminent domain is a good example of that. Uh, and so so it, it's interesting to me, though, that the week uh, before, um, or excuse me, the week after the State Hospital Association announced that they were going to use the initiative and referendum to expand Medicaid, yeah. the Supreme Court comes out with a decision that strikes down the initiative and referendum. Oh, I think I you're was, reading too much I might into be that, reading Senator. too much into those CDs, but, <laughs> but it's awful coincidental. Yeah, know? it is coincidental. But, but, but um, you know, it, uh, but I think those... Those other issues, um, Medicaid expansion and uh, MAEP and fully funding it and all that, tend to drive that that thoughts about initiative and referendum. I don't think that we're going going to see it in this this session because that would give advocates an opportunity to put something on the ballot next year during a presidential election year, and we'll see. And now... Another hour of the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Begin your transition now. Now on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Midday Super Talk Mississippi. We are in the Element Wealth Studios today. The markets are closed because it is MLK Day. The futures are uh, kind of flat going into tomorrow. The NASDAQ, the Dow down 20 and 35 points, respectively. Go to myelementwealth.com or call 601-957-6006. To let Element Wealth help you find your balance between income, growth, and guarantees. So we're running out of money again coming up Thursday. It appears we will once again hit the debt ceiling. Can't borrow any more money. And I think a showdown is setting up between Republicans and the Democrats on this matter. Both factions seem to be fairly well entrenched and aligned in their view of how to handle this situation. Both are saying that they won't negotiate, including the White House. It's calling for uh, increasing the debt ceiling. And Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy says, nope, not going to do that. The only way we will do that, which, by the way, is necessary to fund 
obligations previously made. This doesn't mean we go out and borrow more money so we can go spend money that we haven't yet appropriated through law. It just means we knew it. we got to borrow money just to make ends meet to cover those prior obligations. But what Kevin McCarthy and the, and the Republicans are proposing in exchange for their vote to increase the debt ceiling is to decrease spending. So you remember we talked a couple of weeks ago when the, I guess it's been more than a couple of weeks now, it was, it was during the debate just before Christmas of the omnibus bill the $1.7 trillion omnibus bill that funds the discretionary functions of government has to be done every year. It's not automatic. This bill will carry government spending for the discretionary components of government through the end of this fiscal year, which ends September 30th. It includes defense and all so-called domestic spending. That would be the gigantic monstrosity federal agency complex. All the agencies, the the alphabet soup of agencies, get their money through annual discretion, uh, discretionary spending bills. Well, part of that, of course, includes this provision called PAYGO. Now, that's been around for 12 years And it gets waived every single time. It basically says, if you're going to increase spending, you're going to cut it elsewhere, or you're going to include some provision that would raise revenue to offset the increased spending. But it gets waived every time. They just don't do it. Why do we even have that in there, since it gets waived? Well, what McCarthy and the Republicans in the House or pursuing, which was part of the concessions demanded of the holdouts during the speaker vote debacle, was a concept known as cut-go. And it basically says, no, you can't raise revenues to offset any increase in spending and for some line items, some programs, some objects. In fact, you've got to cut elsewhere. Cut go. I like it. I like it. And so what's happening here is that we've got the debt ceiling looming, and folks are digging in on both sides. And in fact, the Biden administration says that uh, this thing's got to happen, quote, without conditions. I mean, the debt ceiling hike needs to occur without conditions. We believe when it comes to the debt limit, it has been done in a bipartisan way over the years and decades. And it should be done in a bipartisan way, and it should be done without conditions. That is important here. That, of course, from the chief propagandist of the Biden administration, Karine Jean-Pierre. This was shortly after Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said, "Uh, uh, hello, we're running out of money here. We ain't going to be able to pay the bills if we don't increase the debt ceiling. 
Nothing gets by her, Rhino. Oh, Janet. <laughs> so they had to put, no doubt they had to pull her off of some climate change cause somewhere in the country. Because don't you know that's more important than, I don't know, running the Treasury of the United States? we got to worry about climate change and racial causes and stuff like that. So they're saying, yeah, this has got to happen. No negotiations. No conditions. Hmm. So the Republicans in the House, they're hopefully will stand pat on this. The Washington Post has got all kinds of fear-mongering. U.S. will begin extraordinary measures... That, of course, from Janet Yellen, and she's talking about how she's going to manage the cash through this debate as we approach Thursday when we run out of money. So it's really just talking about a few days. But Corinne Jean-Pierre at the podium said, we will not be doing any negotiation over the debt ceiling. It is one of the basic items Congress has to deal with, and it should be done without conditions. Well, I think that Kevin McCarthy is going to earn his stripes here, or he may prove that it was all for show to get elected. I'm in the camp that says he's going to stand firm here, to what he committed, and uh, that we're going to see a showdown. I don't think there's any question about it. And this showdown is going to be one to behold, perhaps the first big test of his leadership right off the bat. Now, keep in mind, the Republicans have one half of one-third of the lawmaking mechanism of government, that being the House, half of the House of Representatives, they control that body at this point. And I'm not so sure that we won't see some defectors on the Republican side that will, in fact, join the Democrats in voting to increase the debt ceiling. Certainly might see that. This is going to be fascinating to watch this unfold. Also, more documents, more documents in the old garage how many more? What's going on here? This is a head-scratcher. you got lawyers for the Biden administration. They're the ones that call attention to this, bring it up. The left-wing media over the weekend, it's fascinating to watch them spin this. Well, it was inadvertent. He didn't know. Oh, uh, uh, Donald Trump, he knew, and he wouldn't cooperate. They're fully cooperating. I fail to see how that really makes any difference. I fail to see the the relevance of that. But one of the things discovered is Hunter paying $49,000 a month for rent. What the heck's that all about? Shouldn't that raise a red flag here and there that warrants further investigation? Something doesn't sound right about that. Of course, nothing sounded right with this Hunter Biden deal. Peddling influence. And even some on the left, you seen this rhino? They're freaking out over this. Debbie Stabenow, 
the senator from the great state of Michigan. She was on the Sunday talk shows, calls Biden comments on Trump documents embarrassing. Because it was just a couple of years ago when he was denouncing Trump as irresponsible. Well, what about you? And even campaign ads with the boxes in the background, him sitting in his, was it a 67 Corvette, I believe, sitting in the driveway just outside of the garage and clearly in the field of view, you could see boxes of classified documents. I got the greatest meme that somebody sent me right now. It's, it's a photo of Joe and Jill Biden, and they, uh, they're holding a garage sale. <laughs> it's got the big sign, garage sale. Got some hanging items and other little disposable stuff out of their house. And three boxes marked classified <laughs> garage sale. We'll be right back on Midday. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's do this. On Super Talk Mississippi. Let's go. Here on a Monday morning, Steppenwolf. Back in the Element Wealth Studios, Super Talk Mississippi, middays. Regarding small rural hospitals going out of business, how many of these hospitals are struggling to make ends meet due to quality of care? Meaning, if a hospital does not provide a good quality of care and a person is stable enough to make the trip to Jackson, how many times does that happen? Just hypothetical questions that cross my mind every time I hear the failing hospital stories. It's a plausible theory, but it's not true. The hospitals in Jackson are losing money, too, guys. They're losing money, too. They're all losing money. It's a bad business model. And the reason is because... You end up either getting paid and reimbursed by a third party that has a great deal, if not most, of the leverage in that uh, in determining how much they will pay. And second, there is uh, a whole bunch of uninsured care that the hospitals just eat. And then third, this is something that I learned about over the last few days in, in talking on this subject to people who are at very high levels in the hospital industry in this state. And that is uh, interesting on your thoughts on this too, Rhino. That is the incredible amount of the patient responsibility that's just not being paid. So what what I mean by that is you have insurance, you receive some medical 
treatment, some care, some services, which are covered by your insurance, to a point. Depends on where you are in the cycle on an annual basis, whether or not you still have deductibles that apply, co-pays that apply, etc. And so you, you guys are familiar with this. You get about 14 different documents, right, every time you – it seems like it – every time you go to the doctor – and receive care that that uh, you get all these documents to to tell you about your benefits explanation. I think's the technical term, and it'll say if you can read those documents, it'll tell you this is how much they charge. This is how much that uh, they were willing to accept because they're in network and we negotiated. This is how much we're paying. This will be the insurer. This is how much you're going to have to pay the provider. And then the provider will send you a bill that says, it should correspond with that, that says, pay this amount. And that amount is being walked on. I was shocked to learn just how often that happens. And the only recourse the provider, the healthcare institution has, is to turn it over to collections. They'll, they'll bug you about it for a while. They'll try to, to they'll dun you is what it's called, to try to collect. And then they finally just turn it over to collections. And that's a giant industry into itself, medical collections. There's a big outfit in Jackson that's in the medical collections business that collects for more than just providers in the Jackson area. They have national accounts. And so then they own it. Well, when that occurs... That gets also reported to the credit bureaus. So now it's listed on your credit report as a collection. There are liens, collections, and judgments. Those are all three dings, three issues, if they exist on your credit report, that substantially lower your credit score. So you got a collection. And then they'll start hounding you. Pay, pay, pay. Well, they're limited, honestly, on what they can do. They ain't coming with a gun saying pay. And, and a lot of folks just say, don't know, honestly, that it's affecting their credit till they go apply for credit, and then they get rejected, or their rates are through the roof, and they wonder why, and, the, and whomever's lending them that money says, whether it's a bank or a financial institution or an automobile dealer or any sort of other large purchase, furniture comes to mind, and they say, well, yeah, you got denied because you got a collection on your record. Well, a lot of those folks just say, well, I don't care. I'm not paying I was a little surprised to learn just how big an issue that's become, that people, even with insurance, aren't paying their share when that applies. And so the hospitals, at all levels, not just rural hospitals, the rural situation is more they don't have insurance. Even in the urban areas where most of their patients in the service provided is covered by insurance, it's the patient responsibility that's not getting paid. I was a little surprised to learn that, as was I surprised to learn just how bad the situation is, even in the for the hospitals in the urban areas that you would think wouldn't have that financial difficulties, because the focus has been on rural. They're just they're closer. <laughs> their their situation is more urgent, more dire. But this problem applies across the entire state. The only hospitals that produce a positive cash flow in the state are those that exist in smaller affluent areas where most people have private coverage that they service, and they pay the patient responsibility. They can make ends meet. 
They can produce a positive cash flow. It's a bigger problem, I think, than just the the rural hospitals. Uh, I was shocked to learn about this. And I would say you're on point, but there is at least partial blame to be laid at the feet of the health care provider. Agree. I mean, from personal experience, I went to the dentist. They gave me a bill after insurance paid. I had it was like sixty some odd dollars after everything, and I had sixty dollars in cash on me, or I could have used my card. Well, I pull out the cash and go. Well, I'm a little short on cash, or I can do a card. I think I was two dollars and thirty some odd cents short on the cash, <laughs> and the nurse working behind the counter said, "Oh, don't worry about that two dollars." Lo and behold, three months later, I get a collection notice for two dollars and thirty some odd cents. There you go. You see where I'm going there. So, obviously, that's not going to break the dentist, but there are a lot more of those that are higher amounts. And when you think about the, the just the amount of care provided and the number of transactions, it just adds up. I mean, two bucks isn't a lot, but if it's two bucks times a few thousand, that becomes a significant number. And I'm not suggesting that's what what happened here in this situation with, with the dentist. But And you're right about that. They shouldn't have told you don't worry about it because it's all automated. Right. The system's just going to kick it out. We tried. It's over 90 days. Boom. Goes to collections. It's totally automated. They're integrated with those. Uh, and sometimes it's third-party medical billing services that handle the billing on behalf of smaller clinics in particular and providers and specialty uh, health care providers. And they're all linked in, these big medical billing systems, with the, with the medical collections industry. It's all automatic, completely automated. And then that, that, then, um, that then triggers the notices, collection notices that you get, and, it, and it's a very structured, sort of phased-in approach where they start out, hey, maybe you just forgot, all the way to, we're coming after you, and they don't, and people just ignore it, and they don't pay. My concern, honestly, here, folks, is that the more we ignore this problem in the country, not just here in Mississippi, because the, the country, the industry across the country is struggling with this. You got the combination of uninsured care, reimbursed care that's below cost, incredible pressure on the labor market, particularly for nurses. And since COVID, the pay for nurses like double. Well, that doesn't work either. So you got a combination of sharply rising expenses and you got uncompensated, unreimbursed care. Bottom line is, it, it, to the point of our, our listener here that sent us the text, it, that still doesn't account for not getting paid when you're providing services. When you're incurring cost and just not getting paid, I just don't know too many industries that can sustain that, if any. And it's it's not right. I'm not suggesting I have a solution. I'm suggesting that no one should be forced to provide care, to provide their labor, they not get paid for it. And that's what's happening. Right, so we got to talk about how to solve this. I still believe these subsidy enhancements that came out of the American Rescue Plan and then recently enacted 
in the inflation, more permanently in the Inflation Reduction Act, should be something that is strongly considered by our legislature and even Medicaid expansion proponents as an alternative, because it doesn't cost the state anything, and the patients get private coverage. And and you can tell every time we talk to somebody, and it doesn't make them bad people. It's just complicated. It's buried in the bill. It didn't get the attention the climate change provisions did. Coming right back on Midday. Stay with us. I'm not worried. I'm happy. Is with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi. We are back in the Element Well Studios. It is a Monday. It's Martin Luther King Day. We thank you so much for joining us. And we just about got the whole building to ourselves today. Everybody enjoying the day off. There is a member of the legislature, folks. Representative uh, State Rep Kabir Kareem. I'm not sure if I pronounced it right. Is it Kareem or Kareem? Not sure. Apologize for that. Democrat from Columbus. He believes it's time that Martin Luther King had the holiday to himself. He's introduced legislation like he has uh, since 2016 that would remove Robert E. Lee from being from sharing the holiday. Quote, Mississippi needs to move into the future. Said Kareem, we have changed the state flag to eliminate the Confederate battle emblem from the design. This is the next logical step. Reminded, did uh, the rep Kareem, that only Mississippi and Alabama still honor Lee and King on the same day. It's never gotten out of committee. Files it every year. What do you think about that? That's That's interesting. This, of course, came about in the 80s sometime. Says he has lots of co-sponsors. No white member of the House has signed up to co-sponsor. Hmm. Loretta in West Point wants to know, how big is Biden's garage? I don't know. I don't think we're done finding all the documents. And now we find out that the Biden Center, the Penn Center, whatever it's called, is it the Biden Center, the Penn Center? I don't know. It's at the University of Pennsylvania. The Penn Biden Center. Okay. I was diplomacy close. and global engagement. I was close. <laughs> Documents there, but funded by the Chinese Communist Party? What is up with that? That's disturbing unto itself. But again, I point out Debbie Stabenow. She's worried about it, the Democrat senator from Michigan. Adam Schiff, he's even worried about it. And you know who was on with the race lady? Representative Elon Omar. She's worried about it. Something's up with this because 
Schiff and Omar are two of the most despicable members of Congress. She says that possible that national security was jeopardized. Schiff and Omar both expressed those concerns. Both yesterday. Well, actually, Omar, I think, was Friday on the show with a race lady. Well, they had to make the rounds this weekend to bemoan the fact that they're being removed from committees. That is true. Yeah. Like that's something new that happens. Yeah, I mean, why are they surprised at that? So they got removed from committees just as Nancy Pelosi did. Yep. When she was the speaker, that is the prerogative of the speaker. They serve on these committees. And Eric Swalwell, who's sleeping around with agents, Chinese agents, what a tool that guy is. Whew! That's bad. Of course, they're all pointing to Santos, who seems to be a fairly hideous human being as well, honestly. I don't care if he is a Republican. He was duly elected. I agree with that. I did look up, by the way, whether or not the members of the House can oust another member. Best I can tell in reading through that, uh, you can if they commit some sort of wrongdoing while in office. It appears that it wouldn't apply prior to being in office. You could see how that would be a huge mess if it were. Oh, yeah. Because that essentially would be overriding the will of the people. Fact is, the people voted for this person. I think many regret their vote today, and it's Nassau County, New York. By the way, this was a Democrat district before he flipped it. They're calling for him to resign, Republican leaders in the county. They're calling for him to resign as well. So, and I agree, he, I think he should, but I don't want to give the power to the House, or the Senate for that matter, either of those bodies, to just have a vote to get rid of somebody for something fairly subjective that occurred before they were elected. Now, while they're in office, and there's some standards that have to be met, you you can't just hold a vote to get rid of somebody. They, they've got to fallen out of line pretty severely. And they should be. If you've committed treason, Swalwell, honestly, I think he rises to that level. So you wouldn't want to see that where the parties just start figuring out who they want to get rid of once they're in there. But in this case, this Santos, now it appears he committed some sort of Ponzi scheme. Besides fabricating his entire life's history, now it appears he took some folks' money down, committed some Which sort of... Which I think of, would actually rise to the level to where the House could take action, because if he is found to be guilty of fraud, he would be found guilty while serving as a member of the House. Okay. It could be. And by the way... To expel a member, it's two-thirds. It's a pretty high bar. That's why you don't see it used. But, and I'm reading here, Article 1, Section 5 of the U.S. Constitution provides that, quote, each House of Congress 
may determine the rules of its proceedings, punish its members for disorderly behavior, and with concurrence of two-thirds, expel a member. But there's some, again, there's some pretty high bar, a pretty high bar that has to be met just to even hold a vote to expel a member like that. It's it's not quite that that simple. Censure maybe would be appropriate in the case of Santos, but again, the guy ought to resign, honestly, my view. Is this Biden doc thing being used to remove Biden from the ballot next time, which is a becoming a more popular theory? I just don't know. And but it does make you scratch your your head, right, when it's pretty staunch Democrats that I thought were big Biden supporters like Omar and Schiff, Stabenow, they've all sung his praises, and now all of a sudden they're really coming down on him for this document deal. I think we just need to know what's in there. I think we need to know who, uh, we need to see the logs of who visited, who was on the premises at his house? Well, according to reporting by Peter Ducey, there are no logs. But the but the White House press secretary completely flipped that question around and said, we reinstituted the White House logging procedures. We're not talking about the White House here, toots. We're talking about his house. That's where the documents are. Sure, we need to know who comes in and out of the White House, and I haven't verified that that's even the case, that 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 somehow Trump eliminated that procedure, that protocol? I don't know. Haven't looked at, into that. But what's important here is, can you tell us who was physically in the presence, meaning you were on the property at the house, where these boxes of classified documents? And the other excuse Rhino about, well, it was inadvertent, he doesn't know. I did do a little research on that. You may have, too. They're, like, marked in an incredibly obvious way. It's all red and classified and tagged and um, uh, just branded, if you will, in a way that it's just very obvious. Like a first grader could say, okay, yeah, that one's different than that, that folder. It's pretty obvious. But you know one problem we have now that does need to be considered? We produce an awful lot of information, way more than we used to, because it's all electronic. We need a different process for this than just printing documents and sticking them in files and putting classified. I think that's becoming a bigger challenge. we got to do something. Some smart people need to figure out a way, I think, to, uh, to process, to handle, to store these, this classified data, most of which is in electronic form, digital form. Now, back then, less or so when he was vice president. But if you think about now, yeah. And I think that poses, I think, additional concern and calls for some more sophisticated technology to deal with that. Well, we got one more segment here on Midday Super Talk Outdoors coming up after the noon break. Please stay with us. We're coming right back in the Element Well Studios.
Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Keep rolling. Three, two, one. On Super Talk Mississippi. Back in the Element Wealth Studios. Final segment of Middays because it is a Monday. And that means Super Talk Outdoors up next. Wow, so much to talk about. I couldn't get to all of it today, but we shall continue the conversation tomorrow. Brian says broadband got millions. Rural hospitals should have gotten this. Well, I have described the flood of money from the federal government for the purposes of building broadband networks or extending broadband to the rural areas in this country. I call it digital welfare. Now, that may aggravate a lot of people that would receive the benefits from this, but it is another fairly blatant form of redistribution. Folks that don't live in the rural areas, their taxes are being used to fund Internet access for people that do live in the rural areas. Now, to me, this just begs the question again, as we always should be asking, what is the role of government? What is the role of government? So if you look at how much the government is entrenched in health care, it now consumes the majority of the government's spending. Medicaid, Medicare... Huge, as a, as a single line item. And then, of course, Social Security, retirement benefits, and we could get into all that. Tim in the Delta says they need to fix the billing. They're not collecting water bills here. I agree the billing is ridiculously complicated. There's no doubt. I will also point out, folks, that and I wrote an op-ed to this effect back in like 2009 or 10 after Obamacare was enacted, that there are a lot of things that people appreciate today, they like about it, and don't even know it came from Obamacare. The problem is it just costs money. So there was a time prior to Obamacare, for example, where there were no limits on on uh, annual coverage, no limits on lifetime coverage. And you could buy policies that said, you know, I'm going to buy a a scaled-down policy that fits my budget, but it has a limit on how much the insurer will pay in a year or over a lifetime. They call it uh, annual and lifetime caps was the, the terminology used to describe it. And Obamacare eliminated that. So that's what caused medical bankruptcies, generally speaking. You had some catastrophic event. You had insurance, but it limited it capped how much you would pay on an annual basis or a lifetime basis. You're just out. You file bankruptcy. So the um, no cost for wellness exams, for example, the limit on the annual out-of-pocket costs. People like all that. The community rating, which basically says you can't charge old people more than three to one, which you charge a young, healthy person. Or females. Typically, their coverage is higher because they generally consume more health care. So all of those were some of the insurance reforms. Oh, that premiums 
uh, I should say claims to premiums. The ratio there had to be 80%. And if the insurer didn't pay out 80% of their premium revenue and claims, they had to rebate money. That's already been happening for years. Hasn't happened a lot in Mississippi, but there's some states where that's been a significant billions checks. Now, to each person, it's not a whole lot. Um, you know also that insurance companies can only deduct $500,000 a year of CEO pay from their taxes. <laughs> They're the only industry that has such a limit. All that was, of course, amounts to nothing in the scheme of things, right? But it was, I guess, more more populist in nature. But so those are all the things most people like about Obamacare, but we all knew, well, that's fine, and I wrote this op-ed said, yeah, this is all great, but it's going to cost premiums to go up. It's going to cost money. And that's exactly what we've seen. We've seen significant increase in premiums, and then there's the minimum essential coverage, which means that you're basically paying for coverage you'll never need. As an example, there, you got that. So all of that was baked into the law, and then you got the subsidy model, which, by the way, I did look that up just to compare last year's subsidy model before, I should say, not last year, but before the American Rescue Plan went into effect, which changed all that temporarily in 2021. So do you know that if your income is above, it used to cap out at 400% of the federal poverty level, 400% now, which puts you at $75,000, $80,000 a year as an individual, you wouldn't get any subsidies if you bought coverage in the exchange prior to the American Rescue Plan, prior to extension of those provisions in the American Rescue Plan is now permanent. Now, if your income is over 400%, your premiums are limited to 8.5% of your income no matter what. It's called the subsidy cliff. That was all rectified, if you will, in these enhancements that just got enacted. This is, this, we've got to be talking about this down at the Capitol. We're out of time today, back in the Element Well Studios tomorrow. Appreciate you joining us. Stay safe, and God bless everyone. Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.